Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, it's great that you could join me today. We get the chance to speak with Holly Norton, who's one of the co-founders of Collaborate, which she described as the tender for volunteers. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. There was no footpaths to where I lived. You had to walk along the train line. And all these people lived along the train line and they just moved things out of the way as the train came past. Um, and there was this one family who had this gorgeous little baby girl and I'd stop and try to talk to them as my tie got better mm. and just be like, you know, chatting to them about things. And that kind of moment of realizing how misinformed I was where being like, oh, I want to do something to help, you know, like you've, you're living in such poverty, you've got this tiny baby or the rest of it. And them just being so confused around well, mm. what, what would you help with? What would, what would I need? I have somewhere to sleep and it's dry. You've seen we've got this amazing daughter. She's so healthy. We're all healthy. Like right. our family's all here. And just something about maybe the reality of life being so much more, like you say, like in Chile, mm. you know, there isn't that support service around there. Mm. So if you are living in poverty, you, everything is a lot harsher. So having things like your health and your family and the ability to feed yourselves mm. is you know, you reprioritize that value. Mm. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this discussion because it's one of those ones where you go in a lot of different directions and talk about things like family, where home is, the influence of theater on her life. We go in a lot of different directions. And a quick shout out to those of you who are volunteers working with Collaborate. It's an awesome initiative and keep up the great work. And if this is the first time you've heard about it, then why not go to their website and check out what it is they're doing. And it might be that you work for a charity who's looking for volunteers. If so, I do encourage you to reach out to the team at Collaborate because I think they are always looking for more chances for people to serve. If you enjoy this episode, then consider checking out some of the earlier ones because this is close to the 70th one from a variety of social enterprises to charities to academics, professionals, a 10-year-old on what adults can learn from kids. There's a real variety, and I'm always looking for people who are able to tell their friends about the podcast, which of course is much appreciated and helps get more good stories out. Now let's get into the interview with Holly. So it's a pleasure to welcome Holly Norton, who's the director and co-founder of Collaborate. Thank you for joining me today. No worries. And this is kind of fun because we're recording this on a weekend, so I feel a bit more relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the podcast, what we often do is um, talk about purpose and what people are doing. Um, but in order to really tell the story of what you're doing now, it's helpful to go back. So we're going to go right back to the beginning of your life. And I'd love to hear a bit about where you're from. Cool, where I'm from. It's never an easy question for people, huh? Um, so at the moment, I'm living in Wellington. I've been there for about six years, other than some brief stints overseas while I was studying. Had a little brief period in Bangkok, which pretty, pretty transformative for me. Uh, but previous to that, I grew up in Nelson. Um, so I spent about 12 years doing all of my high school growing up in Nelson. Um, but that's where we eventually ended up having spent the first 12 years of my life in the UK. So my grandfather, um, down on the West Coast in Greymouth, had been running an ice cream factory since he was about 14, mm -hmm. and that was the family business. So we all moved back to New Zealand to Greymouth from London when I was 13. A um, little bit of a shock to the system, moving yeah. to Coal Creek, which I think has population about two when our family's not there with granddad, um, from London. So we spent a few months there and then ended up in Nelson and, yeah, slowly got my way to Wellington through uni and work. 
There you go.、Mm. So just talk us through the, your early childhood then. Like、mm. you said, you were in the UK.、Um, which part of the UK were you in? So I was in Surrey.、Um, so a little tiny, they call it a village. It's probably bigger than Nelson.、Um, right. <laughs> it's called Banstead. So we lived there. It was really lovely. You could sort of walk everywhere. Um, my dad worked up in London, so it's that nice sort of like 18 mile sort of commute to London, which、mm-hmm. again. In the circle around in London. In the circle.、Right? Yeah. The little green belty bit. Yeah.、Um, so that was pretty cool because we spent the, you know, you go to school and you spend your time in the little villagey bit, but on the weekends you could get up into London pretty fast and go to all the museums and the、yeah. big old houses and houses of parliament. So had like a really immersed in history kind of childhood. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's、Which、great. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I lived for three years in London.、Oh, and、awesome. my wife's from just north of London. So, kind of the Greenbelt, I guess, on the other side yeah, in yeah. Hartford. Awesome. So,、um, yeah, we used to go there a lot. And it's the history, right?、Mm. Like, you know, you, you look, you're walking along, and there's a building that was built 500 years ago,、um, which is an amazing thing. So cool. I was back in the UK for the very first time since I left、uh, last Christmas.、Mm. Um, oh, really? You、yeah. hadn't been back? Hadn't、wow. been back. Yeah, we kind of. With the promise was, oh, we'll move and we'll go to Australia on the first year and the second year we'll come back. Yeah. And it turns out it's actually really expensive to move to New Zealand、yeah. and find a job. It's kind of、up. far, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little way away. Yeah. <laughs>、um, so we never made it back and I just decided to take myself home.、Um, but my aunt took me around and I remember that same thing staying in some old English pubs. Yeah. And they were built in the 1300s. And you were like, everything in this room, like the bed I am sleeping on, has wood in it that's older than. Yeah. Any structure in New Zealand. It's、yeah. mind blowing. Yeah, I would、yeah. just love to go in because I'm relatively tall and some of the you know, the houses were very small.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> Used to、um, you know, bend my head to get in. Really cool, those old pubs.、Mm-hmm. So、um, you're in the UK and you're growing up there、mm-hmm. and that's home. What, what, do you remember the day that you got the news? Hey, we're, hey everyone, <laughs> we're about to move to New Zealand. Or was it on your radar? Like, how did, what's your memory of that? Yeah, it was sort of, my parents sort of snuck it up on us, I guess. Like, we'd been out to visit a few times, and it was always super cool because it was like, hey, granddad's got an ice cream factory. Do you want to go and stay at the ice cream factory for a few months?、Right. So、like, yes, I do. <laughs> like, it had this little tap that, it,、um, you know, how when you get soft serve in a van,、yeah. when it actually just comes out before it gets frozen for the first time, it's very similar.、Ah. So we just used to go out with bowls and mugs and like wave at someone to let us into the factory and fill this up. And, wow. Um, so it's like Willy Wonka, chocolate、totally. factory type of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've only you've got to make everything in 300 gallon lots. So we'd go, can we invent a flavor? And they're like, yeah, but you've got 300 gallons, so you've got to really commit to this, guys.、Like, I see. Yeah, yeah, we want to do it. <laughs> wow, that's、um, really cool. So as a child, it's a kind of a. Uh, mythical place, you know, come and、totally. have all the ice cream you want. All the ice cream you want, and then you're in the west coast of New Zealand where there's nobody else around. So you just be out on the farm. I was convinced I was going to find a mower at some point, you know, heading、yeah. out just for hours into the bush.、Um, so it was this really exciting place to come back to. And we'd been out on a trip the year before we moved. Which we didn't know was a finding a place to live sneaky trip. It was、oh. more of a like, hey kids, let's go and see all our New Zealand friends and go water skiing. And isn't this great here?、Uh, and then we so got there. So they're really p- building up a picture for you、totally. of like, this is the ideal place. <laughs> yeah, yeah.、Um, and I remember they had a bit of a chat when we were sitting on the beach in Nelson about like, this would be a really great place to live, but didn't click that they were actually figuring out where they were going to move. Ah, I see.、Um, yeah. So yeah, they did say kind of. Can't remember the exact moment, but it was just like, oh, yeah, actually, we're going to put the house on the market and eventually move over there. But 
Um, in some ways, I'd always been quite proud of the fact of knowing that dad was a Kiwi and I'd always seen myself as being a bit of a Kiwi kid growing up in the UK. Right. So it was a bit of a shift when I actually then got to New Zealand and realized I was very, very English and was now the English kid in New Zealand. It was like a whole yeah. identity shift overnight. So. Yeah. Well, I think we should go a bit deeper there. So <laughs> <laughs> um, what age were you again? You said 12 or 13, was it? I was 12, like, just about to turn 13. Yeah. yeah. So it's still pretty young, but also a formative time, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And, and when you arrived, what was the moment that, that you realized you were the English kid transplanted to New Zealand? Was it going to school or? Oh, probably going to school because uh, the first bit just felt like a bit of a holiday as usual. Um, yeah, it was surprisingly hard. Everyone sort of went, oh, New Zealand, it's basically the same as England culturally. It won't yeah. be different at all. Um, but my accent was so thick, no one could understand what I said just right. with an English accent. Uh, so one of my best friends, one of my co-founders from Collaborate, Kira yeah. Bickerton, um, first day she met me at school, I said my name was Holly and the accent was so thick she thought my name was Wally, which became my school <laughs> nickname, was on the back of my jersey in year 13. Like, <laughs> um, bit of a running joke. But um, just all the, I'd been in a really strict school in the UK. Okay. Um, you had to kind of have entrance exams to get in and everyone had tutors from like age five and you did seven subjects a day and you had to speak four languages. And mm. so moving to New Zealand, it suddenly felt like anarchy like right. you just didn't know how to relate in this much more fluid sort of way in this more holistic where academia wasn't the only thing that defined you and yeah. I was super geeky didn't talk to anyone in class I mean, no classes are silent clunky shoes socks up to your calves like wow. regulation uniform yeah. so it couldn't be more different in some ways and you're not, you're moving not just to New Zealand you know you're not moving to a big city of mm. New Zealand you're moving to the west coast of New Zealand right yeah so fortunately before I started school we ended up shifting to Nelson so okay. I had the sort of three month summer on the west coast um, which was definitely long enough to be just around with you we got really close as a family in that time because mm. you're the only people who are around mm -hmm. but um yeah definitely good to start school in Nelson and be a little bit a little bit bigger yeah still felt like an island after London but <laughs> yeah and what were some of your other memories I guess of the transition or the cultural differences that you were noticing I actually won a school speech competition in year 10 on going through all of the differences and I'm trying to remember them now mm -hmm. um about all of the hilarious things um but yeah I think one of the things that blew my mind was that lack of focus on pure academia it was that holistic sense of you know like things like spirituality weren't considered a kind of taboo type thing mm -hmm. uh and you know the outdoors kind of time that you had in your family time so i basically got a whole lot of time back in my life and i also basically got like another four years of childhood but sort of thrust on you where you thought you'd already kind of grown up right. so i remembered having to kind of had to relearn how to almost play because i'd been studying before school lunch times after school and then all of my friends were running around playing pole tag and like marrying cicadas and keeping them in Pringle tins in year nine. And everyone in my friends in London at that age was like sneaking off to London Studying. to go to parties and had yeah. boyfriends. And right. um, so it was like very freeing, but it was also very alarming to shift to kind of go, what do I actually do with this space and time? And outdoor ed is a subject. And this is amazing. I can't believe I'm mountain biking on a school afternoon and missing maths. But um mm not having all those structures, I guess, that you defined yourself by, by being someone who was like really good at study. Mm. Um, what do you think that's done for you as a person, you know, that, that, that shift or that change that happened at that young age mm. in terms of who you've become? It's interesting. I think I always think I'm quite lucky for the work ethic side of things. Like I'm lucky to have got out. So I still had chance to have a much more holistic mm -hmm. 
life that it's just so intrinsic to who you are as a New Zealander. Um, but I've never been that afraid of hard work because I feel like those first few years at high school were probably the hardest amount of work that I've done. Right. And so when it came to running a startup, it was just sort of like, well, this was just like high school in yeah. the UK. I did this when I was 12. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've not really been afraid of working really hard on things, but then having that extra space and time because I was a few years ahead in schooling in terms of just the content of what we were learning, I had a lot more time to do a lot of the leadership type things. Mm -hmm. um, it's not to say school didn't get hard, like towards the end by year 13 and whatever, it was definitely getting hard again. But I felt like I'd explored a lot more things in a more active way than I think people who had always had that opportunity might have done. I suddenly went, what am I going to do with this time? I have no friends. I've just moved here. I have a lot of time and I have a lot of opportunities and all these things I've never tried. Mm. Um, so A, I had to come really out of my comfort zone. Um, I was quite a shy person previously and I had to become fun and larger than life and actively set up things to engage people. And now mm -hmm. I'm like the networker for Collaborate. Mm -hmm. And it's so intrinsic to who I am that I'm someone who enjoys connecting to people and finding that bit of relationship building. Mm. But I think if I'd stayed in the UK, you'd never have to because you've got your whole community around you that you've grown up in. Right. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, to think about how a shift like that would affect you in, in the way that you think, you know, and, mm. and, and who you've become. It's definitely affected who I make friendships with in some ways as well, because I think having been the odd one out in a new context, mm -hmm. I instantly started becoming friends with anybody else who was new too, because you've mm -hmm. got that shared experience. And that meant I actually ended up having quite an international perspective all through my high school. Um, so the combination of that mixed with dad doing a lot of work with the um, RSE scheme, recognize mm -hmm. seasonal employers scheme. So basically a lot of Pacific uh, People come out and work in the vineyards and bring money back home. Mm -hmm. So we got very involved in that sort of community as well. So I ended up basically really empathizing a lot with how hard it is and having a lot of shared experiences with people from other cultures that I would have never had anything mm -hmm. in common with otherwise. Um, and then getting a real understanding of all of their stories and their backgrounds and getting really excited by the world, and mm -hmm. which was a very cool thing too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. I think you, I think you're, you've hit on something really good, which is sometimes you take your context for granted if, mm -hmm. if that's all you've ever known, you know, but you were pulled out of what you knew in the UK and came here and being the outsider, it would have enlarged your understanding, you know, of how it feels to be the outsider coming in. Mm, definitely. Because yeah, as you can tell from my accent, I didn't, I wasn't born in New Zealand, but I actually moved here when I was quite young and people always get confused about my accent, but I came here in primary school mm. and, and grew up in Christchurch. And I think like you, I kind of have always looked out for the, the person who's on the edges mm. because of my own having been on the edge, you know? Definitely. Yeah. And did you find you had some really cool friendships you probably wouldn't have had otherwise? I think well? so. Yeah. 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 Like I met a guy, probably my best friend in high school had come mm. back from Africa. And, um, you know, so his experience was so different to anybody else. And mm. and he his parents had been there and then he came here. And, and so we became great best friends. Yeah. Mm, so cool. Yeah. So can I just ask a question about sure. your parents and your father and your mother in terms of what was their experience of coming back to New Zealand? Really and particularly your hard. mother, you know, in <laughs> terms of, I guess she was from the UK, mm. right? So uh, to the extent you can, <laughs> you know, what was their sort of experience or your perception? I think for dad, it was hard because it was hard on everybody else. But at the same time, you know how in New Zealand, you often... You, you form friendships and it's quite easy to stay quite connected to those people. People go overseas for their OEs, but they come back again. And yeah. so he basically, his best friend still in Nelson is his best friend from when he was five in Cobden and Greymouth, 
which is super cute. They're just like best buddies. <laughs> um, but I think for my mother, having had her whole life in the UK, mm. it was the big culture shift, but also her qualifications weren't recognized here. She was a primary um, preschool teacher. Mm-hmm. So not having the kind of work that you define yourself by, not having the family, not having mm. the friendships, and very the, the hard. the networks and the connections, right? Which are, Definitely. Yeah, yeah. As, I, I definitely, because yeah. I was overseas for 11 years and it was wonderful great experience to live in Tokyo, for example, Mm. but you never knew anybody. (laughs) Mm. You'd walk down the street, you didn't bump into people and say, hey, how's it going? Um, And coming back here, I do bump into people that I know. And there is that, you you can't put a price on it. You Mm. know, that depth of relationship that you've known each other for 20 years. Mm. And I'm always quite jealous. Like, I feel like I meet people all the time and they say, oh, this is my friend. And we've been friends since we were like a year old right whereas i have nobody who knows the early version of myself and the new zealand version of myself as a complete picture other than my immediate family right um i don't know it's kind of it seems like a cool thing to have had someone who's seen all of those faces of yourself yeah yeah Yeah. well it'd be interesting for your new zealand friends to meet yourself you know the the early (laughs) it's interesting how you describe it as well as sort of two two versions Mm. well that's why i went back last winter i just had this really deep need that kind of built up over several years of going i just want to figure out what bits of me are the british bits Mm -hmm. and what are just things that are me because you keep meeting people and things that you think are just something kind of cool to how you operate you'd meet them and go oh actually a lot of british people do that too that's just an english kind of approach innate part of who you are totally. so just i guess the kind of bit of a sense check on yeah yeah and what was your findings of this study <laughs> yeah i wish i had something more insightful to say from it i don't know i've got this big nostalgia now i kind of really want to go back for christmas again mm-hmm. um it was so was because you've used a word early on you said mm. home mm. um i think you said sort of going home you know like was that where is home for you now Yeah, I think I've definitely got to a point where home is definitely my core family. We're a tiny family. Sure. Um, There's like six of us, including my granddad. And it very much has just come to mean wherever they are. Mm -hmm. And I use it very interchangeably, talking about home as in my early memories of the UK. And home as being Greymouth. Like Greymouth feels very homely because that's probably the only consistent place I've had all through my life because we visited a lot as a small child Mm. and still here, Mm. even though... My grandfather lives in this, like, very tiny, damp, cramped house with a hoarder. Like, he has cans from the 1920s and everything. Like, it's not comfortable, right. but that feels more homely That's home, than yeah. any other physical place. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. So the, when you used the word home in the UK, that was the home when your family was all there together. Totally. Rather than now, which it's, it'd be New Zealand. Yeah, it'd be yeah. probably Nelson would feel most homely yeah. now. Yeah. Although traveling more for work, finding coming back to Wellington and getting that sense of relief, getting mm-hmm. more of a sense of that in Wellington too. Mm-hmm. Now you've got like a community and identity in a new place. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. It's kind of fun. <laughs> it is. It's fascinating. I just think particularly people who've moved around the world a bit, mm-hmm. you know, just to reflect on your life. And, and it sounds like you've been doing that, you know, like what forms us as people, as mm-hmm. what gives us our identity and, um, and then how does that outwork into what we do today? Mm. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. So just describe then through high school, what sort of things were you enjoying and, and doing? You mentioned the outdoors. Yeah, got really, really into the outdoors. Um, I'm trying to think what I actually did. I've kind of got more into it in recent years with hiking and stuff, but I guess that's more having the ability to just take yourself off places as an adult and mm. make bad decisions in the wilderness without your parents checking in. But 
Um, what did I get really into? I did definitely get into sort of outdoor ed and stuff. So I we started a kayak class when I was in year nine. That mm-hmm. was pretty crazy to be able to do all of these things that felt like adventure holiday stuff that was just a part of normal life in mm-hmm. New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Love the beach. I've always loved the beach. Mm, so That's a good place to be then. Definitely. <laughs> There's a lot of great beaches there, isn't there? Um, my bike. I still have the same bike from high school and it's still my baby. It's still like that ultimate feeling of freedom of just being out like on hill trails, whizzing around places, yep. nipping down. At the moment I go off down surfing in the mornings or quite often I just take my bike down and jump on in. But that's exactly what I used to do in high school. Just take the bike to the river in the mornings or after school mm. and... Um, so the sense of freedom that comes from that. Definitely. Yeah. But also acting. Got really into acting. Okay. I think that was a bit around that gaining confidence and having to meet new people and be something. What got you first interested in acting? What well, was actually when I was a wee bit younger in the UK and mum mm. and dad were like, she just doesn't talk to people. She's really? the weird, quiet kid. Um, so I got put into drama school. And in the first term I was there, I got like the lead role in The Little Woman Who Lived in the Shoe. It okay. was a... Broadway hit. You should have seen it. it was that classic. Gold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so your parents wanted you to come out of your shell a definitely. little bit, and and this was a way. Yeah, yeah. but um, I think having that time back because um, I'd been like after that I got set on like I'm going to be a West End actress, and then we moved out of London. And it was like what? Right. Um, but actually having a bit of time back got quite into theatre through high school. Mm-hmm. So I actually went to university to do theatre in the end. It's oh, okay. not where I ended up. But, Interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. so let's talk about that because you're sort of getting to the end of high school mm. and you were getting focused on theatre. That was what you wanted to, yeah. to do. I think that's because where I felt like the most free version of yourself and the mm-hmm. most kind of experimenting with all the different bits of yourself. So mm-hmm. the, the National Youth Drama School was like a one-week camp every year. Okay. Um, and that was always like the most exhilarating highlight of the year, just going with all these crazy drama kids and yeah. just be anything. Yeah. So that's standing on stage and you're not yourself. Mm. That is that the feeling you're describing or is it other parts? Yeah, probably. Um, I guess... I am I somebody who reflects the reason a lot, I'm asking so. that is yeah the reason I'm asking is I interviewed someone named Peter Wells uh, who um, is leading the Otakura Orchard. I've had a chat to him. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you'll you'll probably know that well maybe or maybe not but theater was a big part of his life uh, um, right through high school and he described how he felt that it it basically affected everything that he's done since then because mm. there was this sense of being on stage and the um, the teamwork that comes mm. from your fellow actors and actresses, you know, that you're playing off of each other, the energy that comes from that. He mm. said that then you take that to anything you're doing in life, a project or a collaboration, that it's very similar. It's very similar. That big build up to a show sort of thing. And you're yeah. like gaining that momentum and that energy and building those really tight sort of family bonds. And you mm. get the real highs and the real lows and the exhaustion. And mm. it's very true. Hadn't really thought about it, but it feels just like running a startup. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. You got team yeah. members and everyone's got their roles, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. So, um, so you're set on doing theater. What does that mean when you're you know, year 13, 
Well, so everyone sort of said if you're going to go to Toy Fukari, which is like the dream if you're mm-hmm. doing theatre in New Zealand, uh, they don't really take people straight out of school. You've got to have some life experience. I see. Um, which at 18, you're always like, I've got all the life experience I need. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, so, but, you know, fine. If you insist, I'll go and get some life experience. And so I took five majors in my first year because I was just like, well, I'm just experimenting till I go to drama school. You yeah, know? And this is an intermediate step. Totally. Right? Yeah. Live out my dreams. And I think it was that ability to affect kind of hearts and minds and things with theatre too to like talk about Mm. things and actually create some sort of change or make people think differently about something Mm -hmm. which I still am really excited about and I'm not sure how it's going to play out at some point but Mm -hmm. um, I started getting interested in politics and international development studies and Mm -hmm. some of the other bits I'd started studying there like journalism and Buddhism and Mm -hmm. It also seemed very, I'm someone who sees a lot of the connections and stuff, so they actually all seemed to cross over in quite a powerful way. And I felt like there were other ways of creating change, um, but that maybe had a slightly more direct point for the way I could use my skills to help. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still think there's some really cool stuff done with like theatre in development, for example, you know, where you can get people to explore their own lived experiences and their stories and find healing through Mm -hmm. theatre. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess it's a medium where um, you can have conversations that are very difficult to have as well, right? Like some conversations are so awkward, but if you're in, you know, you're watching someone on a stage, then they're living something out and you can identify or, Mm. you know, be challenged by whatever is happening. Definitely. But I also think a little part of the shift happened with part of me wanting to do theatre as well was I guess that's where I'd found my confidence and the idea of being a kind of shiny actress kind of thing seemed like something that was good to aspire to. And also Mm -hmm. everyone says, you don't do acting because you'll never make it. So you get really more resolved around, no, well, I'll prove everyone and I'll do it. And then getting into stuff like development studies where you're just really getting deeper and deeper into the amount of things happening in the world, Mm. just a kind of underlying sense of guilt around, well, if I'm not actively, if I can't break down my day and see what I'm doing that's actually going to start affecting some sort of change in these areas, then you just have this low-level underlying guilt Mm. with the... Having so did that. Part? So so let's you you start with five majors, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then gradually was development studies what you ended up studying more of. Basically, so I ended up doing my postgrad in. So okay, it yeah. sort of narrowed down. And the creeping guilt that you're describing, <laughs> when, <laughs> when did that start, or was that through studying that you thought I need to do more, or? Yeah, probably, probably through first year. Like I'd been quite involved in community through my parents in Nelson. So mm-hmm. mum works one-on-one with special needs kids. So I'd grown up doing okay. a lot of babysitting, a lot of babysitting people with autism and dyspraxia. And say dad had done a lot around, basically he's a labor inspector. So looking after people who might not be, be treated the way that they should be doing. Mm. Um, but getting to uni and you're sort of living in this very sort of for yourself lifestyle a little bit in the early, well, not everyone. I mm. was, I didn't have any responsibilities. Um, I wasn't doing all the stuff I'd done in schools, like hockey and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you're just so, but yeah, this kind of underlying didn't feel right to be having lots of fun and all of this opportunity when you're getting more and more aware of all of these people who don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of... So does that, can there. you um, trace back to a moment when that sort of, you realized there's more to this or was it sort of, you know, over months that it came about? I'd say it was probably over months. I can remember some very specific moments where, you know, you'd be like as a student and be whining to yourself about, oh, I don't really have a lot going right now. Like I don't have a lot of 
running out of food and I don't have a lot of money. I don't really want to eat this. You know, I've got enough food, but I don't really want to eat this boring rice salad thing. You know, I kind of would rather buy something. Mm. I don't have enough. And then kind of it just hitting home that you've just been in a lecture about something to do with like dealing with the outfalls of famine and the long-term effects on a society. And then right. just this whole like, holy hell, like <laughs> really you need to get your priorities a little shaken up. And yep. um, It's interesting because yeah. um, – when I was 11, my father moved our family to Chile, mm. and we were there for a year. And it was such an amazing experience because we had people come and knock on the door mm. asking for bread, you know, pretty basic thing. Yeah. But there was no support services system, you know, like that there was alternatives. Like if we didn't give them something, then they would go hungry, you mm. know, like it was a direct in-your-face poverty. Um, and that had a huge impact on me looking mm. back at my own life, you know. Um, and yeah, it's just interesting to hear that, you know, it, it is that stories of other people and what they're experiencing, comparing it, contrasting it with your own experience. Mm. I think there were two definite moments though, that kind of really changed how that, well, that was a very basic understanding, I guess. And mm -hmm. it kind of, oh, I, I want to do something. And I feel like a lot of people feel like that at some point, they kind of go, oh, I want to do something bigger or do something more. Yeah. Um, but one of them was moving to Bangkok to do my exchange and realizing that everything I'd ever read or studied about development was completely just didn't fit the mold. And it was almost like I didn't even have the boxes in my head to fit all the new information right. that I was learning. Like most of the people I engaged with, I ended up living in the basically one of the biggest slum areas in Bangkok by accident, but my accommodation online, you know, they had so much less, but actually their whole, they kind of call it sufficiency ethic in Thailand because it's around the Buddhist concepts, right. but their values were so different that actually I ended up envying quite a lot of their happiness and things and how they approach the world and things that I assumed were kind of things that were poverty and needed to be changed were actually deliberate choices by people. So that was really big. Mm. And also working for this charity called Initiatives of Change um, and feeling really guilty because we ended up getting into kind of holding refugee support kind of circles and things in New Zealand and talking about people's stories. And everyone would have to openly share. And I'd feel really guilty because Perman would tell this horrible story about how they'd been through these things. Yeah. And then it would get to your turn and you'd sort of be like, you know, sometimes I don't have time to buy the burgers that I want to buy and all the money. I used to get free ice cream. I used to get free ice cream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like... You've, the hardship story wasn't really totally. there, was it? You know, but then, you know, there were definitely hardships throughout yeah. my life. You know, like moving was really hard. Like, mm. you know, people in my family got quite depressed at the time. You felt like you were carrying a lot of the weight as the oldest child. Mm -hmm. I certainly struggled with sort of eating disorders on and off through my high school year, you know, things mm. like that. And it was just the kind of permission from some people in that space to be like, it. you don't have to have been through some kind of almost genocide situation mm -hmm. to have had a valid experience. Mm. And actually just like, I don't know when... You see someone who's upset about something that you don't think is such a big deal. They're still feeling that same level of pain or anguish as somebody mm -hmm. else might about something totally different. It's all in your range of perspective. Mm -hmm. So that was also very freeing as well to be like, cool, well, I can have an impact on these things. And these things are really important. But also I shouldn't undervalue. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't feel necessarily guilty about reacting in my own life to things. Right. Yeah. Accepting your story. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just... Talking about Thailand, you know, you mentioned that some of the people that you met were much poorer mm. than than other people that you met, and yet they seemed happy, um, or you know that they had what they needed. Mm. Um, what were some, I guess, what was it that led them to have that attitude, or 
how it, is there any way we can unpack that more? The reason I'm asking is that it's fascinating to me because I think in Western culture, we tend to incentivize or we want to have a bigger salary. We want to have mm. a bigger house, a bigger car, because then once we've got those things, we'll have made it, you know, we'll have achieved. And yet the reality is often those are false promises mm. and it's the reality of the moment and, you know, relationships with your family and your friends and things that actually give you the depth of, um, of, character i guess and and richness of life and yet in the west we're constantly you know oh, i need the next iphone and i need the next thing mm. um yeah just reflect a bit more on that maybe yeah i think it's a super hard one to unpick particularly having studied there so you kind of go into the academics of mm. well how does how does buddhism and a culture that's so centered around a king who promotes a sufficiency ideal so it's this kind of revaluing on having little and being happy with what you've got but mm really breaking it down i guess I, I just remember the conversation that i there was no footpaths to where i lived you had to walk along the train line and all these people lived along the train line and they just moved things out of the way as the train came past um and there was this one family who had this gorgeous little baby girl and i'd stop and try to talk to them as my tie got better mm. and just be like you know chatting to them about things and that kind of moment of realizing how misinformed i was where being like oh, i want to do something to help you know like you've you're living in such poverty, you've got this tiny baby, all the rest of it, and them just being so confused around well, mm. what what would you help with? What would what would I need? I have somewhere to sleep and it's dry. You've seen we've got this amazing daughter, she's so healthy, we're all healthy, like right. our family's all here. And just something about maybe the reality of life being so much more like you say, like in Chile, mm. you know, there isn't that support service around there. Mm. So if you are living in poverty, everything is a lot harsher. So having things like your health and your family and the ability to feed yourselves mm. is, you know, you reprioritize that value. Mm. Um, Which in the West, yeah. sometimes I think we have lost sight of that. <laughs> yeah, you just take it for granted. Yeah, you take it for granted. And and if, of course, you know, that's a given. And, and now I want to buy the bigger car. That's very <laughs> Maslow's hierarchy of need, perhaps. Yeah, maybe something. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a guy I interviewed um, named Mark Ambundo a couple months ago now. He's from Kenya, mm. and he lives here in Christchurch now. Mm. So he, in that interview, he calls out sort of what he observes about Kiwi culture. Mm. And one of the things that we talk about is the fact that when he talks with Westerners, they are like, you in Kenya, you're, you're young people, they don't have shoes. You mm. know, it's such, so, oh, I feel so sorry for those kids with no shoes. And Mark's like, what are you talking about? You know, I didn't want shoes when I was a kid. Mm. In fact, if you force me to wear shoes, then you're not really addressing a need that I even have. Mm. But you and your Western view of what you think that I need and how, how poor I am. You know, it, it was a fascinating comment from someone from Kenya, mm -hmm. um, which kind of bit of synergy with what you're talking about. Definitely. And I think, and I know we haven't kind of got to talking about collaborate and stuff just yet, but I think that was a lot of the motivator and part of the journey going from this thing of okay well there's things I really want to help and change in the world and then oh well I want more ways to do something like that and yeah. then slowly going on this journey of realizing that actually it's not like I have stuff to give and other people don't and that I can just go in and help people right but more that everybody has so much that they can give mm. and that if you actually just create those opportunities people almost get more value from being able to share that sort of thing mm -hmm. You know, one of the first meetings we had for collaborators with this refugee youth charity, and we were talking about how we could do something to help refugee youth in Wellington. And they were like, well, 
why you know like we could do a conference and we could bring in workshops and people get involved and they're like well can't we run one of the workshops and it was just such an obvious sort of right where you feel so bad that you just haven't <laughs> fully clicked but you know yeah. it's that you come in and impose we're doing this for you and you'll accept it <laughs> totally but yeah, yeah i think just that whole kind of growing up shift from I feel incredibly privileged and I've suddenly realized I have all this privilege. Oh my gosh, I want to do something to help. And then, oh my gosh, actually, maybe I'm not the person who can be helping all the time. Sure. Maybe a lot of the time I'm the one who's getting a lot more help yeah. from people who I'm trying to help in the past. Yeah. Well, I think this is a beautiful segue into talking about <laughs> Collaborate. So cool. I'd love to do that. Um, so did it, the origins of it, you mentioned one of your friends from Nelson mm-hmm. was sort of a co-conspirator starting it all. Yeah, um, yeah. Had you come back from Thailand? Was it around that time that this was happening? And, and what, what time frame are we talking about as well? Because it's relatively new, right? Yeah, relatively new or a lot older than a lot of people realize as well, I okay. guess. Well, th- yeah. talk us through sort of where it's come from. And- so I, the time I spent in Thailand, it was third year university for me. So it was just a student exchange period, seven months or so. And um, had started with that kind of community behind the railway side there, started getting involved in things. It was just so much easier to, through these relationships that you built, identify really obvious needs and be able to contribute as part of that community. So we ended up just getting a bookcase and building a bookcase and getting a whole load of school kids back in New Zealand to donate English books because the kids wanted more practice at learning English. And then we held a bit of a party session and we're helping people learn to read and just creating spaces um it was a really simple project but it was you know it was probably the most meaningful thing i had done at that point in my life that i actually felt i could see some sort of impact and it was such a small action for me i could just go out literally buy a bookcase which cost me like twenty dollars in new zealand money Mm. um and you know get people back home to contribute and they all felt really good about being able to do something and Mm -hmm. that people had sort of asked for something coming back to new zealand i suddenly went back into my daily student life And you know from all the study that you do that there's so much poverty in New Zealand and there's so much happening, but you're so removed from everything, it's really hard to know how to help. You know know all of these things that are happening overseas and you feel really powerless to affect change. You know climate change is happening and you feel really powerless to affect change. You know that there's really high youth poverty levels in New Zealand. You know there's really high unemployment levels. And you end up being this like super impassioned young person and then you're just walking around on your day to day going to you and you're going, but what can I what can I actually do? You know, rather than perhaps perhaps have a chat to somebody who's sitting outside a store begging at some point. Mm-hmm. That that's about as much control in my immediate life as I could kind of see. Mm-hmm. Um And yet you'd had the contrasting experience in Thailand where you saw the immediate benefit to the children, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And you had that immediate connection. Yeah. Um, and real connection, you know, as well, not just having to give your money to some kind of charity somewhere else and just trust it was going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started looking for something to do and I joined this charity, which I mentioned before, Initiatives of Change. Um, they were really struggling. They had no young people, basically. Um, they were huge in 111 countries around the world. Um, they'd been, they actually had quite a lot of backing and funding and that sort of thing and opportunities, but no young people to do anything. Mm. So I had some really great opportunities with them. I spent some time in the Korean demilitarized zone. I went to Geneva. I did a lot of kind of like peace and conflict resolution training. Um, But again, there was this big juxtaposition where I'd go overseas and I'd talk with these amazing people about things that were happening and train and do these cool things. But New Zealand, we just couldn't run any programs because we didn't have enough people. Right. You know, they were supposed to be running kind of refugee support program, these things called peace circles. And they were really meaningful when they did happen. But the resourcing was just so small in terms of physical people, not money, just Mm. people power. Mm -hmm. 
And then one of the moments that sort of really clicked for me was when the refugee crisis was becoming really publicized in the media and everyone who spoke to said, I want to do something to help, but I just don't know how. And here I was where I'd managed to find myself in a situation where I was part of a charity that was trying to do something to help and didn't have the human resources. And going, there's just some massive disconnect here and I'm not sure how to make it better. Um, so I started a bit of a meetup group, I guess, at the time. It was just me talking to other young people in charities in Wellington and like, hey, why don't we just get together or work in this humanitarian space, let's share some resources, let's share some ideas, um, see if we can maybe run some programs together. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sister Poppy came on board at the time. Mm-hmm. A few other girls who are no longer involved, but they kind of really kick-started some of those conversations and were hugely powerful in the beginning. Mm-hmm. For Tindore, who's up in Auckland, she, I think she was the first person who was like, right, let's stop talking about this. Let's have coffees once a week and start putting some conversations into action. Right. And uh, yeah, Collaborate was supposed to be like a once-a-week meeting. Um, turns out trying to hold once-a-week meetings isn't the most effective use of everyone's time when they're volunteering on top of work and day jobs right. and trying to run their own charities and... Um, but about six months in, we realized that all these platform technologies were taking off, like Tinder and Uber. And we had this kind of conversation about, well, actually, for the like four or five people who'd actually turned up to this meeting, because it was really hard to get people coming along, we were all like, why, why aren't we doing that? Why don't we just focus in on actually building that kind of platform instead? Mm. Um, so it was kind of that meeting we made the decision. And that was pretty much the four co-founders who are still kind of the co-founders today mm-hmm. um we're all just sitting in this church hall going well no one came to the meeting again do you reckon we should try something else <laughs> right <laughs> oh that's fascinating yeah. and in terms of time frame how how long ago are we talking about so like for that meeting when you're the yeah, four of you were there or whatever that was about june 2016 okay. so we'd had our first meeting december 2015 mm-hmm. had been um at that point for Tin and the skill Carvey and myself and my sister Poppy Norton's one of the co-founders at that stage. Mm-hmm. Kira had pretty quickly got involved after that. Kira and I had grown up together since we were 13. Yeah. And then early that year, my friend Sophie had come back from overseas as well um, and decided to join in. So that's who it is today running it, I guess. Yeah. And the, when you started in December, between December and the June, I guess, mm. did you find that it um, increased in popularity for a while and then kind of it was harder to get people to come along or? Yeah, probably the first two meetings, there was a lot of energy and then it it just wasn't quite getting off that cost benefit kind of dividend, I guess, of being worth people's time for what we're able to create. Yes. Um, And I guess it was lack of, well, we decided it was probably a lack of connection to all the things we needed, which was resources and information. We Mm -hmm. might get seven charities in a room, Mm -hmm. but actually we still had no idea what was happening in the rest of the sector. And there were so many other people that weren't, engaged and yeah it was more than we could manage just through our personal connections and then it was like actually technology exists that's kind of doing this yeah so there's something bigger there but yeah. i'm just keen to drill down on that point because i think because many people listening to this you mm. know they'll have experienced similar things where you get you get two or three people and there's this like yeah let's make let's do it let's make a change yeah, yeah, yeah. and then yeah let's meet up in a week or two weeks and oh, I've got a friend, bring them in as well. Oh, we've got seven people now. Oh, we've got 12 people. Mm. But then at some point, it's kind of the energy goes away again. Yeah, yeah. And so how do you transform it and do it in a sustainable way? You know, and it sounds like for you, it was the technology or the outlet was, let's build a platform. Mm. But I guess for anybody, it's more the not putting your hands over your ears and going la 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 it's okay it's gonna it's gonna pick up it's totally it's more the looking at what actually isn't working and being really reflective Mm -hmm. and that's something that we kind of did at that point and something that 
it's probably been one of the main reasons Collaborate's continued to grow and be a thing. Right. Because we've changed so many different times over the past couple of years. Okay. Um, and very responsive to the feedback about what's happening. And sometimes it's not always easy to hear the feedback, but mm-hmm. being aware that if it's not constantly evolving and growing to be what people need, mm-hmm. then there's no point us putting all this time in. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about that in a minute. But just the word collaborate, like mm. how did you come up with that as the, the, the phrase, I guess, to yeah, describe yeah. it? Um, it sounds like it should be really easy, doesn't it? But it <laughs> it, it wasn't. It was initially Anything called simple. Schnock. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. Because like, being from government, I thought that acronyms were really great. Yeah. So I was like the Small you NGOs Collective. have to spell it out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did it stand for? Uh, the Small NGOs, Small NGOs Collective. Okay. Um, so, I mean, this has been the cool thing about bringing in so many other people and um, them all taking it on and it being a, much a part of them driving something in their movement as it has ever been anything to do with me. Right. Um, because everyone has shaped it so much. Mm-hmm. So people coming in and being like, yes, I love this, but schnock sounds really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it's really helpful. I don't want to spend my whole energy on this if it's that name. <laughs> yeah. So I don't remember quite how we landed on Collaborate, but we've gone back and forth a thousand times since then. Right. We were called Danu for a few days. Okay. Yeah, which was some kind of goddess of something that we thought might embody yeah. the thing better and have a better hit on the website because apparently collaborates used in a lot of other places already I see, yeah um, well it's funny isn't it because th- those sorts of things like the naming of an organization mm. it's actually really hard to come up with something that simple communicates mm. like people think you know it's easy but it's not you know like this podcast i went through so many names trying to think of something that mm. represented what i wanted it to be and landed in the end on seeds which i'm so happy that i chose because it really does like the stories are mm. seeds hopefully for the listeners but i had all these other thoughts and names that i look back and i think i'm so glad i didn't go with totally those, you know <laughs> i wonder how much it shapes how you do things once you've kind of landed on a name yeah well for me it's definitely shaped it because it it's easy for me to explain it in mm. a in a visual way you know like we all know that seeds look dead mm. you give them the right conditions and they grow mm. and it's such an easy thing to convey very quickly yeah um that that's what i want this podcast to be and cool. i imagine with collaborate as well it's kind of oh i get it you know definitely collaborating <laughs> yeah and everyone it's almost it became such a buzzword a few years ago but the fact that it gets used so often is almost this great segue as well. And people are mm. like, we just need to collaborate more. We just need to do this. And we're like, hey, collaborate. And we yeah. can jump in. But it really is just that vibe of, like we were saying before, everybody having skills that can make a difference. And it's just how you put them together, how mm-hmm. you make that catalyst is what's really powerful. Yeah. So walk us through exactly what it's doing. What's keeping mm. you busy day to day? How does it work? So Collaborate is a volunteer matching platform. It's probably the easiest way to describe it, or the even easiest way to describe it is the Tinder for volunteering. Um, Essentially, in that meeting where we said, hey, we need some kind of online way of joining us all up together, um, we looked around us and Tinder seemed to be the sort of easiest existing app that sort of did what we wanted. Mm -hmm. You could create some kind of profile and you could have some kind of opportunity you know, in dating's case, it's another person. In our case, we were thinking more like ways you could use your skills and time really meaningfully. Right. And if there was just a really fast and fun and easy way to connect, that was what we were aiming for. So it literally looks and feels very similar. You log in with Facebook. It's a web app. You just go to the website. Mm. You can save it as a home screen on your phone and it feels like an app. Um, but you don't have to download anything or... Um, so yeah, you log in with Facebook, you choose your skills and your interest areas. So there's 10 key skills and there's mm-hmm. 10 key interest areas. And you go, yeah, I'm into graphic design and I've got a law degree. So I want to do law and I'm really passionate about nature and I'm passionate about youth and I'm mm-hmm. passionate about food. 
And then all that happens next is you hit get volunteering. So it's really quick to do. Mm -hmm. um, and the next thing you'll see is an opportunity card. So based on your geolocation, things happening in your community that match your skills and your interests mm -hmm. pop up and you can just swipe through until you find something that matches. Right. You find something you like, you hit express an interest mm -hmm. and your profile that you build when you set up that just says, hi, I'm so-and-so and I've got these basic kind of skills and interests just gets emailed straight to the charity. Mm -hmm. So the idea is taking away all of that kind of CV swapping back and forth and months of organizing things and really just enabling people to say, actually, I've got a free evening. I've got a free weekend. I'm going into uni holidays and looking for a three-month project type thing. What can I do that actually is win-win, gets me excited, mm -hmm. deals with stuff that I care about, fits around my busy life and actually makes a difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's great. Thanks. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love the way that you explain it. You know, it's an easy thing. It's mm. a simple thing to do. Do you find that um, most of them are sort of one-off engagements you know like i've got a limited window here I'll, you know mm. a week that i'm that i can put forward or is it more does it end up becoming like i'm volunteering once a week to help with this refugee center or something like that yeah there's a whole mix uh when people fill out a role on the website so it's should say as well it's free for anyone to submit a role mm -hmm. one of the things we're trying to change is it's not just for charities because we realize so many people are affecting change in their daily lives that if you have a good idea and you need some skills or people you can put a role up mm -hmm. um but yes one of the things you can tick is whether it's project-based one-off or ongoing i see there's a lot of one-off roles which is really really cool I think people often think of one-off roles as being more hands-on type roles, but there is actually some really highly skilled things you can do. Right. You know, if you've got a design background, you can make a poster. Or if you've got a tech background, you can design a website mm -hmm. and have a really big impact. Yeah. Um, and for an organization, there's a moment in the organization's journey when they need a website more than just somebody logging into a free, you know, <laughs> template type thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It can be really big. Um, but then we do a lot of the culture change stuff as well around breaking down traditional roles that mm -hmm. would have been 10 or 20 hours a week um, into those more easier to manage, easier to access things. Mm -hmm. um, so I say there's about 18 people who volunteer and work on Collaborate, quite significant numbers of hours across the country at the moment. Right. It probably only takes about one of the Collaborate team and the kind of tech firm who's partnered up with us and helps us out to maintain the app and the rest of us are all working on that community relationships and that culture change piece. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, fascinating. And how has, how has it been received? And I know you've just come down to Christchurch, for example, mm. relatively recently, right? Um, <laughs> a few hours ago. Yeah. Um, but it's clearly becoming a national thing rather than, you know, a Wellington. You started in Wellington, yeah. I presume, and then it's sort of growing from there. Definitely. So, I mean, that first meetings that I mentioned that weren't going very well, mm. um, after that, we decided to build this app. We kind of knew from that experience that it had to be something that people who were going to use it were bought into and we were listening and responding to their feedback. Yeah. Um, so we basically started talking to people and mocking up some ideas. And that next 18 months grew to involve about 18, um, 18, 18 months grew to involve about 400 people, mm. um, which was incredible. So they were volunteers, they were organizations, they were just generally influential people in the kind of change making space. Right. Um, and we didn't have meant to take 18 months to do it, but a lack of funding and the fact that none of us knew how to code kind mm -hmm. of held us up. But it's probably been one of the most valuable points of our whole journey because by the time you spend 18 months talking to hundreds of people, you really know that what you're designing and shaping is going to really work. Mm. And it also builds this big momentum of people who are excited about this and feel a part of it and see themselves as a part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so we kind of meant to do a soft launch in Wellington. That's what we initially did. That was 25th of October last year, which mm -hmm. is 2017. 
Um, but day one, 50 charities signed up and they were right across the country, right. which was super cool and super humbling and very scary because we'd kind of just meant to see how it went. Yeah. Um, and then about six months in, we realized, hey, there's actually a lot of places taking off outside of Wellington. And this is where we need we need people in those communities who can keep it evolving, keep listening to that feedback and responding. Mm-hmm. And that's where we brought in our, our team of 18 now. Mm-hmm. Um our ambassadors across the across the country. So we have teams now in Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington, Nelson, and Christchurch. Mm-hmm. So I'm down staying with some of my cool Christchurch ambassadors at the That's moment. That's great. And who are the Christchurch ambassadors? Christchurch ambassadors. So we have Alex, um, Alex Knott. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex and I also actually went to school together in Nelson. Ah. Uh, but she's up here at the moment doing some awesome consulting work. And um, Camille as well, Camille Wrightson. Um, so both of them signed up and volunteered through the app, said they were interested in being an ambassador, and they pulled off the Christchurch launch. So we do these things called regional launches where there's already a bit of energy in a place, people are already using Collaborate, but you might not have the same amount of volunteers or charities on either side. Mm-hmm. So instead, you actually really work with the community to onboard a lot of roles and talk to volunteers and get people excited so it becomes a place that community can come to mm-hmm. and connect and see themselves in. Um, so this is probably the first launch that I've been the most hands-off in. I just checked in like once every two weeks and these girls went out to all of their networks, all of the people they knew, uh, and we ended up launching through the Impact Summit in Christchurch a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's been incredible. The signups have gone through the roof since then. The Christchurch community is just such a, Mm. just the perfect place for something like this and people have really embraced it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's just listening to you talking as well. It's just... I'm not sure where this is going exactly, but when you were in Thailand mm. and you met that family who had the baby mm. and you were kind of like, oh, I want to help you. And they were reflecting back, well, what, you know, we don't need anything right now. Mm. It sounds like, you know, because you have to have that listening ability, don't you? Like, what do you need? And mm. it sounds like the journey you've been on, the fact that you weren't coders gave you the time to listen to your community and take them on the journey with you to then be successful rather than because very often I think people go away and they identify a need a real need Mm. they go out they work hard they build something and they bring it and say this is the solution Mm. use it which is kind of the wrong way around you know like because as opposed to let's talk about it let's work on it together Mm. Um, yeah does that sound accurate or yeah very accurate and I think one of the most shaping videos in I always find it kind of strange that, you know, you talk about like your leadership journey, but we're very much a quite flat structure in how we do things. It's very much a community and collaborate. But one of the big things that kind of shaped how I wanted to be when I realized we were bringing on new people and they were becoming a part of this was that, have you seen that Dancing Man video they use mm. in leadership coaching? I don't think I have, no. Oh, there's a guy and he's off dancing at a concert yeah. um, out in a field by himself. Oh, I have seen that yeah, one. Yeah. And then they all join him, right? And everyone yeah. joins him. <laughs> That's and a great one. Yeah. It's so cool. And there's this little commentary about you know, basically he's the lone nut until the next guy joins him. And then by the time there's a third guy, that's when it's kind of a movement and it becomes safe. And that kind of key line from it that is people don't follow leaders, they follow followers. Right. Um, And also that sense that how you kind of nurture and bring on board the people who join in something like that Mm. for it to be their own thing Mm. and for them to really shape it and to be theirs too is how you really build a movement. Mm-hmm. And that's always what's fascinated me. Like at school, I got into like the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution and probably with theater. It's like, how do you affect real change? Yeah. And learning really quickly or slowly, depending how much of this journey you look at, that you're never going to affect real change if it's you standing out there as a lone nut doing something. Right. 
you got to take people on the journey take with you. Take people on the journey. And I guess the beauty of your app and what you're trying to do is you're taking people with you on the volunteering journey mm. because they may volunteer one time, but then it's almost changing their perception because maybe they'll then in the future look for other ways they can get involved. You know, the ripple effects. That, Definitely. So they, they volunteered here once and then later on they might do that again. Yep. In different contexts. In different contexts. And the app also kind of tracks your volunteering too. So if people let us know, we can build up their profile. Mm -hmm. uh, part of the tech that we're sort of fundraising to build at the moment automates that. But it's people build up this bit of a mini volunteering CV. And so they see where they travel on that journey. I see. The yeah. impact and the stories. Um, but yeah, it's been really cool hearing from the charities, hearing from people about what it's changed. People yeah. have gone on to get jobs. People have built whole organizations. People have saved many crises where someone's been able to jump in two hours after they put the roll up and right. save the day. Really help. Yeah, that's really great. Um, you mentioned something earlier I'd like to come back to, which is sort of the, the, the hard times or the mm. difficult time. What In your journey, um, what have been some of the difficult things that you faced? You know, maybe one or two. Mm. I'm really keen for people listening to be able to learn from other people's journeys. Mm. So has there been anything that sort of stands out to you that you didn't expect or was harder than you thought? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's just so, so many different things that are incredibly hard. And you get up there all the time, you tell the really excitement stories and mm. the wins because that is what keeps you driving and the bits that you reflect on and the bits that everyone gets excited about too and joins that community. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd definitely be lying if I said that it was easy and I think anyone who's ever founded anything will know that um, it certainly wasn't like sitting in that meeting that nobody had turned up to back in 2016 that I went this is awesome I love learning the really hard way that all of this like by that point a year of hard work was paying off to nothing and not helping something mm -hmm. um, particularly when you're doing it out of a place of heart and you've already sacrificed a lot of kind of like time with friends and family and yeah. put a lot of yourself into something um, and yeah so that whole kind of journey there's always moments of the things that shift and shape something to be really successful tend to be quite painful learning thorns. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so what have been one or two practical things that you're talking about here? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to reflect on specific moments. I'm a really big picture person. <laughs> um, I think some of the more painful things for me have been trying to reconcile within myself as well when you lead a really values-based organization. You have this values of how you want to run something and how you think you mm. relate in the community and the culture that you bring into it. But it sometimes juxtapositions with your actual human ability to cope with stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, you have this visual ideal of how you're going to react in certain situations or how you're going to approach things. And then you don't always act out the best version of yeah, yourself. Because you're human, right? Because <laughs> you're human. Yeah. So like my, you're going to be kind totally. and patient all the time, right? <laughs> so my team's grown really fast, for example, and I think they're all incredible people. And when there were four of us, it was really easy to live this value of bringing on everybody in this really holistic way into every decision-making piece and yeah. valuing them and knowing... Very democratic and... Totally. Yeah. And everything about them that motivates them and making sure every opportunity that you do is going to drive them forward. And at the moment, I feel really guilty because we've grown so fast and we had to because that's what the communities need. And you've got to run with it and just stumble a bit and mm. do that forming, storming, norming thing. Mm. And we're mm. definitely storming in a few places. Um, but, yeah, you kind of get a bit of a guilt thing where, you know, maybe not mm. living up to the leadership thing that you'd want to do where, you know, some people are really running with it and you really relate. And then you try, try to coach someone who's really different to mm -hmm. anything you've ever come up against before and trying to balance the time and that understanding. Yeah. And I guess the contrast as well, because the original founders, right? Mm. Like 
many of them, well, your sister, yes. <laughs> you'd known her quite a while, and the other person who you'd known, you know, from age 13. Kira since I was like, 13, and yeah. I lived with Sophie in university, right. so you so know those people. You knew intimately, like, what motivates them, totally. and, and now you might be having collaborators based in cities that you haven't even met yet, potentially, totally. that you don't know what they were like in high school, <laughs> you know, like, what what's led them to be where they are now. Yes, when yeah. I came down for the Christchurch launch, it was the first time I'd met Camille on mm-hmm. our Christchurch Ambassadors. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and half of it's your own self-internal criticism, but, you know, just losing touch with what people are working on for a second and yep. checking back in and going, oh, I'm sorry, I realize it's really hard and I've been doing this for three years and yep. how you really keep those strong values-led, non-hierarchical, community-built things Yes. when stuff starts getting really big and really fast. Well, ultimately, at some <laughs> point, there has to be a structure in place, mm. doesn't there? And the problem is if the structure itself start, starts to build into something that is against the values that you originally wanted, which was the more flat structure, right? Mm. Definitely. So we're doing something pretty cool about that, actually. So I'm stepping down as director. Um, we announced it last Thursday, so a few days ago. Yep. Uh, and my sister is actually stepping up to take over more of the operational and the running sort of thing so that I can step out and not be the director in that kind of formal leadership role anymore. Mm-hmm. But we're creating a new leadership team with some of the amazing volunteers across the country. Mm-hmm. And my job's just going to be coaching people. Mm. helping those people take it on and be the new leaders of it all in the different regions, which I'm so excited to have the time to do properly. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It sounds like it'll be a a real chance for you to listen. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which has been kind of the word that's come through this podcast for me is Mm. listening and reflecting. Yeah. Um, Can I ask you, maybe as we sort of wrap up, just Mm. thinking about the word social enterprise. Yeah, sure. And um, what this organization, in terms of long term, how it's going to survive. I guess, how is it funded now? And how will it be funded in the future? I know, um, because I'm always, as you know, I'm a lawyer, so I'm quite interested in structures and kind of how people make sure that things can have long term impact rather than short term uh, flaming out. (laughs) So what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one. And that was the other thing that came to mind when you sort of said, what have been the the kind of thorns and the Mm. really learning points. So we started off um, having to register as a limited liability company because there's a lot of support for social enterprises starting out. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of support for charities. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what we were going to be. So we jumped into the easier structure and we got on some cool accelerator programs. Part of Mahuki, an amazing program of anyone is looking for a really kind of culture values driven accelerator to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got to the end of that and the idea with an accelerator is you have an intensive three month period that you develop an idea and you pitch it at the end. Mm-hmm. And we launched as a part of that. Um, and we had some investment interest, um, but we learned really quickly that this whole community way of operating that we'd set up wasn't in line with what investing, even impact investing was really looking to do. You know, we come back to the community for as many of our decisions as feasibly possible and mm-hmm. you know it's a lot slower in terms of a process mm-hmm. and on the point that we were then where it's just volunteers matching with charities there's no you know with between ourselves you know i'm 26 and i'm one of the oldest involved mm-hmm. um you know and the volunteers and the charities there's nobody in there who has a lot of money to spare to fund things like technology yeah so we built the first version of the app with a hackathon we need about four hundred thousand dollars to build all of the new changes that the community have told us through that amazing right. feedback that they want yeah um but to get that through investment would mean we'd have to make some trades that just weren't going to sit right. Like mm. all of the core team would have had to quit their day jobs, part of that fast, flexible lifestyles where you can live your values and also have meaningful employment that you care about was important to us. 
um, a few other bits and pieces going on, but basically we decided we couldn't do that. So we flipped completely the other way to become a charitable structure Mm -hmm. and then realized it's really hard to find $400,000 in charitable funds as well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, even when you've got this real need for things. Mm. Um, and so the bit that we've kind of got to at the moment is the bit that you see today is the volunteering platform. The next stage for that is building out that automatic kind of tracking capability, which mm. is going to be hugely valuable to people being able to build up their skills and, uh, you know, create those employment opportunities, build up their own personal value. It's really valuable for the organizations because they can then actually have almost like a bit of a reference check guaranteed. It takes a lot of the time out and gets their speed matching. Mm-hmm. Um, the next bit that actually facilitates that is actually a log on for the organization. So they've designed and built it out and it's ready to go. We've just got to hit play. We've got to raise about 170000 for that bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that bit's incredible. And all the organizations we test it with, we test everything, which includes funding models. So we ask them, you know, we've got to build this tech. What's it worth? What are you willing to pay for that? So there's a funding model associated with that. Uh, small charities might pay next to nothing for it. Right. Um, you know, it's very, depending on the charity, is saying next to nothing because obviously if you run a tiny charity like ours, anything is something. Anything right? is something. <laughs> uh, and much larger yep. charities, it's incredibly valuable for. Um, it's going to be a bit more to use, sort of, you know, more than $1,000 a month, 1500 Sure. But it's all prices that they've kind of indicated. Um, and then the next thing that we realized, though, was that we'd missed this big picture where corporates and businesses actually really want to volunteer. It has a huge impact for them in terms of people feeling they're living these value-based lifestyles that they want, mm-hmm. gives people a chance to learn and develop and grow amazing skills, uh, helps keep people around for longer. You know, the attraction and retention benefits for them are massive. Mm-hmm. And they've got a lot to give to communities. Um, and also funding isn't as tight for a lot of them. So we've got a new kind of corporate volunteering program we're just kicking off at the moment where we're looking how what looks like that same technology that charities really need and really value is actually going to have huge benefit for people in corporates who are wanting to give back mm-hmm. and let them have a really meaningful interaction um, that actually builds and values and value into the business. Um, so there's going to be a funding model associated with that too. So anyone wants to be a part of that, we're mm-hmm. literally building it with people at the moment, same like the other process, mm-hmm. designing, shaping, putting people's feedback in. Uh, but essentially the next two tiers of platform will have some sort of payment structure mm-hmm. associated. But at the moment, we're a limited liability company, becoming a charitable trust, mm-hmm. and then considering within that where those funding structures have to sit, whether you own a company that's under a charitable arm or whether you go full charity and... Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky. It is tricky. The benefits and I the know. fundraising. And yeah, I see it all the time because yeah. I help many social enterprises and charities as well to set up. Mm. And we've had a conversation a couple of weeks ago totally. about this, you know, just because I was pushing you a little bit in terms of don't just jump in to be a charity right away. Mm. You know, make sure you understand all alternatives because <laughs> once you commit towards the charity, then... Um, then you kind of shut the door on other options. So mm. it's um, it's it's difficult. Yeah, mm. and I think for us, we sort of we took a vote as like a founding team and said, look, the reason we're doing this is not about the money. We don't care about being able to sell it in future. We don't want to get rich off this. We mm. just want it to be able to drive itself and do what it needs to do well. Mm-hmm. But the tricky part that you get to is that actually there might be kind of more company structures at some point that actually give you that ability that you need to incorporate and use with the charitable side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like you kind of pick being a charity and that means you still can function really efficiently all of the time without any revenue stream. You still need to get the revenue from somewhere mm-hmm. to make those changes. So we want to be self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. What label fits under doesn't matter so long as it's still 100% values-based and it's doing the good work we want to see. Mm. 
Yeah, no, I hear you. I, mm. The inherent tension I feel mm. underlying what the words that you're saying is that what you're talking about is volunteers mm. helping situations, but you as an organization yourself, it, it feels like you have relied a lot on volunteers as well. And so whether that's something that long-term is going to you know, be viable or whether there will be a way you can monetize it and get corporate sponsorship or corporates paying so that this large organization can connect their staff with the volunteer opportunities for a price, you know, which then would monetize and mean that, you know, it's a more sustainable model. Definitely. Because one of the worries I have with any volunteer organization is that people eventually, you know, the first six months is great. The first year is wonderful, but eventually you kind of burn out and you need to move on to the move on to something that can actually pay um, in terms of mortgages and Mm. responsibilities, which is unfortunately the world that we live in, you know. Um, Yeah, totally. I mean, we hope to be a bit of an exception being a volunteering app and proving that volunteering can create amazing things. So Mm -hmm. all 18 of us are volunteers and we've built everything today on volunteer power. Um, But yes, absolutely. There are just a few things like base costs that you can't pay for with volunteering. Things like accounting software. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, for better or worse, the numbers that you're throwing out, you know, 170,000 for this or 400,000 for that. Like, that's a lot of money in anybody's book. <laughs> totally. So. But, you know, we've got 240 or so charities on it now, yep. uh, nearly a 1,000 volunteers, and so team of 18, and that's all volunteer power, and it's looking pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I've loved our chat because we've kind of traced back from your childhood, you know, and <laughs> arriving in New Zealand and feeling like this was a new place for you. Mm. And I was fascinated in how, you know, that, that I guess, shaped who you've become. Mm. You know, you described yourself as being quite shy and, you know, not so outgoing when you first arrived and then realizing there were opportunities here Mm. that you had time to explore. And also that word listening seems to have come through a couple of times, you know, Mm. just listening with empathy to the people who you're working with. Um, So, yeah, I just want to say thanks very much for coming on the show. And, um, and I wish you all the best for the future and I'll be watching to see how it goes and definitely be recommending people to use the site. If they want to use it, maybe just tell us where they need to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that would be great. So we say 240 charities now, nearly 1,000 volunteers, but we always need more volunteers and also would love to get different opportunities up there. We believe in really different opportunities. Um so if you want to use it, you just go to letscollaborate.co.nz. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a volunteer, you click the button that says the app and you go through. It's just a web app, so you log in through the website. If you're an organization, there's a button that says need volunteers and you click that and you can register and fill out a drop form. It takes about two minutes and we'll get your role up within 24 hours. And so there's all kinds on there. There's a role for taking people to Dungeons and Dragons with you right the way through to sort of board roles. Um, So whatever it is that you think you can make an impact with, we'd love to help you connect up with your community and make it a reality. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, so where people click to listen to this, Mm -hmm. down below there's a a place that will have a description about what we talked about. And we'll put in links to there, you Mm -hmm. know, like Facebook pages and other things as well. So. Yeah, so thanks very much for coming on and nice. um, really appreciate your time driving out here and meeting in my house. And um, But it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed our chat. Yeah, thank you for all the tricky, reflective questions. Yeah, no problem. <laughs>
Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you want to know more, in the show notes, there's some links that you can click to find out about Collaborate. And as I said at the start of the show, I'd really encourage people who are looking for volunteering opportunities to check it out. But also, if you work for a charity or organization that needs help, then reach out to the team in your region, and they might be able to connect you with some willing volunteers. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider leaving a rating and review for the show, tell your friends about it, and also consider checking out the back catalog, because there's literally dozens and dozens of other interviews just like this one. Until next time. Mm -hmm.